we see women who are victim and at the same time also perpetrator. So it isn't that black and white. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Now, every few months, there's one of these stories in the press about women or children who are part of the Islamic State, and either they've returned to Europe or they're stuck in a camp, I think it's called Al-Hol in Syria, and often there are big documentaries asking why. Yeah, all this information is usually quite focused on individual stories, and it's quite a bit fragmentary, but it does also come up in my day job as a Reuters journalist. There was a big case here in 2019 in the Netherlands where women and their families brought a civil case against the Dutch state because they wanted the state to repatriate them from the Al-Hol camp specifically. Uh, they won partially, and some women have been returned, and they are now awaiting trial um, including one historic case for the Netherlands where a, a woman is accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity for having a Yazidi slave. Now that case is still pending. It's still in the preparatory phases. I think those are all the kind of examples that are drifting across my consciousness over the last few years. So I was really intrigued when I heard that colleagues in The Hague at the International Centre for Counterterrorism, together with colleagues from, I think, different parts of Europe, were digging into the justice system, not just in the Netherlands, but also looking at Germany, France and Belgium. And they were trying to get together some real data on the actual numbers of those who've returned and exactly what they've been charged with. And we're pleased to have Tanya Mera with us. She's a senior research fellow and the head of the pillar rule of law responses to terrorism at the ICCT. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Janet. Good to be here. Thanks so much, Tanya. Of course, we'll put a link to the book with all the details that we're going to run through here to the ICCT website. But why don't you, for our listeners, help to lay out the scene to start with? What I understand is that about 20%, that's about a 1,000 individuals of these, and I'm going to start using your terminology, the foreign terrorist fighters, so-called, about 20% of them who went from Europe were women. Now, do we understand to start with why these women headed out to join the Islamic State? So actually, the reasons for them to join is not very different than for men. So you see that they have joined uh, for various reasons, uh, for a sense of adventure or for uh, an ideological motivation. And they were attracted by uh, ISIS to join not only men, women, but also entire families that have gone there. But in fact, our focus of our research was not so much on uh, why they went and what their profiles was, because uh, we see that there has been a bit of research already done on that area, but there's a lack of systematic research conducted on how female VOs are managed through the criminal justice responses. When you say you look at that, you mean the criminal justice responses when they return? Yes, so we see that there's no systematic research done into that. So what we look at is how they have been prosecuted. We look at the detention and we look at the rehabilitation and reintegration of these female VEOs in four specific countries. So we looked at Belgium, 
France, Germany, and the Netherlands. And what we have done is that we have collected 283 court cases, and we have conducted 69 semi-structured interviews with professionals in these four countries, coupled with open uh, source research to look at exactly how are they being managed and how can we inform policymakers and practitioners. And not so much on assumptions, but on a data-driven research on how to effectively uh, manage VEOs, female VEOs. Because our perception or the media perception of these women has changed. To start with, there was a lot of stories about naive girls lured to the caliphate because ISIS had these videos of uh, family life in the caliphate and uh, family-friendly jihad situation. When I listened to uh, the podcast about Shamima Begum, there was a lot of information about her watching also these videos where ISIS tried to show itself as a good place to, to raise children in Islamic circumstances. And I think, Janet, you had a couple of book quotes that referred to that. I pulled a couple of things uh out. You know, in some ways, I don't want to stay with this understanding the perceptions of these women, but I think it does also inform the discussion that we need to have about what they've been charged with. So one of the, the tropes that's used is this idea of jihadi brides. Another one is the stereotype that they were bad mothers, or maybe they were whores, or maybe they were monsters. I mean, that's specifically related to the uh, Shamima Begum way of seeing her, the British woman who went out. And I think the podcast you were talking about, Steph, was the one, I'm not a monster. They're kind of seen as deviant women. So Tanya, how does all of that understanding of who these women were sort of feed back into what the policy responses have been? Now, indeed, I mean, in the years that I've been working in uh, counterterrorism and especially on the issue of the so-called foreign terrorist fighters, you see indeed that the public perception is very much either they are all seen as victims, as young jihadi brides who've been lured by ISIS and they're totally innocent, or they're seen as the other way around, that they're seen as uh, monsters and as calculated uh, terrorists. And I think this is exactly what we have to be careful about. Either we are underestimating the women or we are overestimating the women. And from the research that we have conducted, although it was not focused on the profiles, but by analyzing these court cases and by conducting these interviews, we've seen actually it's much more nuanced. We see women who are victim and at the same time also perpetrator. So it isn't that black and white. And these things need to be taken into consideration, like during sentencing, but also how you deal with them during detention or when you are developing and designing an individual reintegration plan. So this image that they are either or, it isn't what we have seen from the court cases. We've seen a lot of gray areas. And you can also see that some women might have left the radical ideology and then re-engage again later with it. So it isn't on and off and it isn't black and white. And in the court cases that I followed, you do see a lot of the black and whiteness. You see the prosecution basically saying these women had an active role either in propaganda or transporting weapons or supporting ISIS in some way. And then you have 
defense lawyers generally making the argument that these women were kept at home, couldn't go anywhere, had to raise children, and had to obey their men. So you say it's it's much more nuanced. Does that come out in the way that they are prosecuted for the moment? Because we, we had this argument and we had people make the argument that when these people return, a lot of times foreign fighters just get charged with membership of a terrorist organization because it's the easiest thing to hook on because you just have to show that they were members of ISIS. But a lot of NGOs always advocate that they are looking at wider charges, crimes against humanity, war crimes for the contributions they made. So a lot of things I would like to pick up on from what you said. Maybe to start with, I'm not a big fan of the word foreign terrorist fighters. I don't like this word to be used for men, but uh, also not uh, for women. First of all, they're not foreigners. They are our own citizens. And I think by calling them foreigners, it makes it easier to maintain the argument to say, leave them there and we do not need to repatriate them. Second of all, not all of them have been engaged in uh, terrorist activities. And I think this in particular applies for the women. As we can see from our data set, uh, most of them indeed have been prosecuted for membership of a terrorist organization. But we've gone further than that. We have completely dissected the membership of a terrorist organization because that can mean a lot of things. And when we have done that for the women in our data set, it shows that the vast majority have been involved in logistical support, which could be cooking, cleaning, or doing administrative tasks. And then the last part, fighters. Women have not been engaged in combat functions or in the violent jihad while being there. So in that sense, the word foreign terrorist fighters as a label is not very useful. And we try to refrain from using that and either refer to them as female VEOs or returnees, especially when we are talking about the ones who successfully gone there and returned. So how many are we talking about those who've returned and have they all been treated the same way? No, what we do see is indeed that uh, the women who left even before the caliphate was established and they have returned, many of those have returned voluntarily. And you see that they have not all been systematically been prosecuted. Some of them, yes, but some of them have only been hired as witnesses. And what we also see is that the sentences have increased over time compared to the first period once they started being prosecuted. So you do see a change, a shift taking place, not only in the Netherlands, but we also see that in uh, the surrounding countries. And the numbers, is it uh, more than 100 women? No, so I think it is 136 women have been repatriated between 2019 and 2023. And with them came around 400 children? Yes, indeed. But what we have indeed seen that having children has a big impact uh, on the women. It has an impact during prosecution, during sentencing, during detention, and during uh, the reintegration. In the book, you describe indeed how their status as mothers and the fact that they're detained alongside their children as opposed to men is something that gets them repatriated as a kind of saving the kids or something like that. Were they seen then as less dangerous when they had children, do you think? 
think, first of all, in some cases, indeed, the mothers may have been repatriated because their children were being repatriated. But you do see also uh, a shift in some countries that they are actively repatriating the women and the children. And it is not only dependent on the fact that they are having children. I don't think the women were necessarily seen as less dangerous. I mean, after the first attacks which occurred in Europe uh, in 2014 and onward, we've seen that the Tunis can indeed pose a terrorist threat. And we have also seen in 2016 a foiled attack at Notre Dame, which was planned by several uh, women in France. And they were convicted uh, on average to 25 years uh, sentence. And in fact, there were even 17 plots involving women in between 2014 and 2016 in Germany, France and the UK. So I think there was a genuine fear if all these women would be repatriated, uh, what this would mean for the respective societies and what challenges it would pose uh, for example, uh, in the prison. But they have been dealt with, as you said, at least initially more leniently than men. Maybe it's the wrong term to use again, but is that evidence of some kind of gender bias in the system, that the justice system saw them as mothers or as, as you say, mainly as victims? What was going on? So I don't think there was actually a gender bias. I think you really have to look at uh, which period these women came back. The women who came back before the caliphate was established, there was not that much information available uh, at that point about how IS operated. And I think as more experience was gained by the prosecutors to successfully argue that women have contributed to IS, you see that more prosecutions were taking place. Furthermore, more offenses were being criminalized that also allowed for more prosecutions. And I think what is also very important that after the fall of the Caliphate, there are different mechanisms such as triple IM and UNITAT, which have collected, I mean, millions of information and stored this. And some of this is being used in the national prosecutions against women and men in Europe. So I think these are a couple of factors which have contributed to this shift, and you now indeed see that women are being prosecuted, I wouldn't say more harsher, but uh, more broadly and more seriously. But even then, if we look at our data, we don't see that the women have been actively involved in combat functions. They are more involved in logistics. But we also see that women have been involved in arranging travel, either for themselves or for others, or for propaganda issues. And this leads to a maybe a lower sentence for membership offenses than if it would be a male who had been engaged in fighting and has been prosecuted also for a membership offenses. So I don't think it's a gender bias. I think it has to do with the role and the activities that the women have played. And one of the challenges indeed is trying to find information of the activities within the household. That is not that easy. Yeah, when you look at some of the cases we see in the Netherlands and Germany, some of the women are increasingly being prosecuted for their involvement in 
slavery and, and sexual slavery as a crime against humanity in Germany uh, for a woman having a Yazidi slave in the house. And I think that is also what is now in the case that still has to go in front of a judge in the Netherlands. The cases we see with these Yazidi sex slave cases are mainly women. Are that because they are in the household and therefore they are kind of an accomplice to this and there's more testimony about them being in the household? Or is it simply that the men who held those Yazidi women as sex slaves haven't survived because they were fighters? So you see more women being prosecuted because they got out of the caliphate alive and a lot of the fighters didn't? That's an interesting question. Um, maybe just one step back uh, is what we indeed see is that now more women are being prosecuted for core international crimes. And that is in particular the case in Germany. And to some extent, it's starting in the Netherlands. Actually, the most common core international crime is pillaging. We do see some cases indeed of whole agency slave as a crime against humanity or genocide, but those are still just a few cases. But both of the crimes are to some extent within the household, which indeed poses uh, some challenges. So over a dozen women in Germany have now been prosecuted for pillaging. One of the challenges when it comes to prosecuting core international crimes is that you need evidence that is most often located in the conflict zone, unlike membership offenses. So you do need to get information from there. So this can be what we call so-called battlefield evidence. So this is information collected by the foreign military and which is declassified and can be shared with national authorities in other countries or indeed information from IIIM or UNITAT. So when it comes to pillaging, some of the challenges in proving that is that the women have not themselves appropriated the property. It is ISIS which has appropriated the property and they actually continue the appropriation. So that is one of the challenges. The second challenge with pillaging is that did the women actually voluntarily move in that house? Did they have an own agency? That is also something what needs to be proven. And thirdly, the women must have known that that property has been appropriated. So in Germany now, they have been able to successfully prove this quite a few cases. And it has raised the question, is this gender biased the other way around? I mean, because men are not being prosecuted for that, at least not yet. So we have found now one case where a German a male has also been charged for pillaging. And I think when it comes to the more gender-based violence crimes, as you mentioned, I think it's interesting to see if and when more men will be coming back and if they would also be charged for such offenses. So that is indeed something to see how that is going to be developed, not only when it comes to sexual and gender-based violence crimes, but also if men have left Europe with their own children, whether they would also be uh, prosecuted for child neglect offenses. Because what we see is in the beginning, it was only focused at membership offenses. But we now also see that several women who have taken their children 
to the conflict zone are also being prosecuted under domestic law for child neglect offenses in addition to membership. I also found it an interesting discussion with your colleagues that this move away from solely focus on the membership crime and this broadening out to this range of international crimes, crimes against humanity, war crimes, even genocide that we've seen. It's a very different way of framing what people were doing there and moving away from the idea that it's uh, the state saying you shouldn't have done these things, but now we're getting some kind of justice for individuals. Is that also the way that you see it? Definitely. I think you have to try to hold the women and also the men accountable for the full range of crimes they have committed. And I think prosecuting only for membership offenses, it's a status crime. You don't hold them accountable for the actual activities that they have done. What are the offenses then you see that are not being pursued at the moment that could be pursued in Europe? So I think if you would prosecute only for membership offenses, you are not holding the women accountable for the full range of activities that they have committed. Because membership offenses, it's more a status crime. It's about contributing to a terrorist organization. You are not zooming in on the actual activities that they have done. And I think it's important if you want to achieve a more full accountability that you would also explore charging them for international crimes where applicable, but also charging them for domestic offenses. You can also consider charging them, for example, for weapon offenses, or you can uh, charge them for child neglect offenses. So this cumulative charging would lead to a far more fuller accountability, and it may even lead to longer sentences. One of the things we hear a lot is saying the women are receiving very low sentences. In the Netherlands, we had a couple of trials in absentia for these women, and they were then abandoned. Can you explain why, how that happened? Yes, certainly. So it was part of the prosecutorial strategy in the beginning that we would try men and women in absentia. It would also give a strong signal to those who may be considering to go to join ISIS and uh, travel to the conflict zone that you would be held accountable. However, in the Netherlands, like in other countries where trials in absentia are permitted, you do have a right to be present at your own trial. So these women who were detained in the camps have, through their lawyers, indicated that they wanted to be present at the trial. So the judges decided to stay the proceedings a couple of times for six months each time to allow the state, in this case, the government uh, in the Netherlands, to bring those women to the Netherlands so they could be present at their trial. This didn't happen. And at some point, the court was considering to terminate the proceedings in the Netherlands. And that would mean that they could not be prosecuted at all, even if they would come back. So this was the reason that the Netherlands decided to repatriate a woman. Iwiam Bey was the first one who got repatriated on these grounds. And then uh, followed by that, another five women were repatriated with their children, and they have also been prosecuted. And then I believe in November 2022, 
another 12 women and their children were repatriated and their trials still need to take place. So we do not see anymore that women will be convicted in absentia. We do see this in the neighboring countries. For example, in Belgium, over 50 women have been tried and convicted in absentia. But I must add, several of those women might have already died because in Belgium you would still try these women unless you have a death certificate. And we see in France that also some of the women have been tried in absentia. We don't see this in Germany at all. Their trials in absentia are not possible. Some of the public discussion in the Netherlands, and I've heard the same in the UK around Shamima Begum, is that these women are somehow using the fact that they're being held in camps or the fact that they're now in dire conditions trying to get repatriated, even if that means to have a court case because the conditions even in prison here in the Netherlands or in the UK are much better than the conditions in the camps. What do you think? Sometimes the discussion seems to be that we're somehow rewarding these women by giving them a trial in their own country and letting them be present at their trial. And I wonder what you who have followed so many legal cases think of this odd discussion about whether these women, quote unquote, deserve a proper court case in the country they are nationals of. So I think from a legal, moral and security perspective, we should repatriate these women and they should be held accountable if they have committed any crimes here in the countries where they come from. So it's not about rewarding them, it's about holding them accountable. And they are not foreigners, so they should be held accountable here. And if you would expect them to be tried in the region itself, that is highly problematic. And uh, it raises many issues, whether or not they would be able to get a fair trial. Also thinking about what these women themselves have been through, many of them, I understand, have actually experienced these incredibly awful battles in places like Mosul, maybe trauma-scarred themselves. How does that play into how they are dealt with back here when they go on trial? Yeah, so what we indeed see, if you look at the profiles of the men compared to the women, there are indeed some differences. One of them is that hardly any women have a criminal record. But what we have seen is very uh, highly prevalent among the women is that they have indeed experienced trauma. And they could have experienced this trauma either before going to the conflict zone or during their time with ISIS or during their time in the detention camp. And even being repatriated and being separated from their children can also be highly traumatic. So from that sense, we really see that trauma has a huge impact on these women and that requires care throughout the criminal justice system, but needs to be addressed uh, also during detention. And it's important component of their reintegration plan to address these traumas. Thank you so much for explaining that book and explaining what we are seeing now playing out in, in the courts in Europe. At the end of our show, we always ask our asymmetrical haircuts questions. One of them is, what didn't we ask you about that we really should have or that you want to raise? 
One is the fact that women are receiving lower sentences. That is something we have seen that the media picked up uh, quite quickly. And we feel that there are many reasons why that is the case. But that was one question which wasn't raised. And the impact of deprivation of nationality is another one, which is in particular uh, in discussion in the Netherlands, where I'm actually quite happy we got to talk more on some of the more other issues that we have researched uh, in the last year. Tanya, I'm, I'm pleased there were some elements that we didn't manage to ask you, which are the kind of things that uh, I certainly saw in some of the, the Dutch headlines coming out. But I thought, you know, for our listenership, we're really interested in in exactly what people have been sentenced with and, and why. So I'm glad that we managed to uh, to shift the focus for our audience. But our last question is always, is there anything that you've been listening to, watching or reading lately that you would like to share with the audience? It can be connected to counterterrorism or it can be something, you know, that you use to switch off. I'm particularly interested or concerned about the rise of the far right uh, in the global South countries. I see the focus is a lot uh, on Europe, but I'm seeing such developments in Malaysia, in uh, India, in Sri Lanka, and I am concerned uh, how this is going to play out uh, in the near future and in the long term. And do you have any specific reading around that that you'd like to recommend to us? One of the books that I would highly recommend is The Rise of the Radical Right in the Global South. And it is edited by Rosana Pinheiro Macado. And I'm going to get one last question in that Janet keeps forgetting, but I'm trying to uh, work very hard to get into the podcast all the time. When we talk to legal professionals like yourself, often there is a court case or a case that they remember either from their beginning that really inspired them to do what they do or that they like to tell people about that's really connected to their current work. So I'm asking, do you have a favorite court case that you like to talk about or have as an example? Ah, um, many court cases actually, but one that comes to mind uh, relatively recent is the case of Yusra in the Netherlands. I think it's a fascinating case, uh, just only looking at her profile and seeing that she has elements of being both a victim and a perpetrator. That's one. Uh, but also from a legal perspective, I think it is very interesting. She is the first and only female violent extremist offender who has been charged for a war crime while not having traveled to the conflict zone. So she has been convicted for that in first instance while committing that crime from the Netherlands. So I think that is a very interesting case, but it also just shows that you need to combine uh, different legal frameworks. You do not need to only look at it through a CT lens, but you need to look to the full extent of the law and see how you can achieve justice. And when you talk about a CT lens, of course, you're talking about counterterrorism, which is the, the acronym that maybe our listeners aren't super familiar with. So I'll, I'll just spell that out. But thank you so much for sharing your cross-boundary expertise of counterterrorism, legal responses, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, and how all these things link together to look at these cases of returned ISIS men and women. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks, Tanya. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, 
your International Justice Podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has been recorded at home, but we'd like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub in The Hague. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. Thank you.